I've entitled today's encounter with Jesus as his encounter with the woman at the temple. Now, in most of your Bibles, if you look at this section here in John chapter 8, it'll be um, have the heading of the woman caught in adultery, which is certainly uh, an accurate description of what happens. But I believe the setting is incredibly important for us to truly understand what Jesus wants to communicate through his word to you and I. Everything about this encounter is incredible. In fact, all of the face-to-face encounters with Jesus reveal the heart and character of God. Both God's grace and truth shine through each encounter, and we all have much to learn from each and every story. So today we're going to look at this encounter face-to-face in John chapter 8 that takes place in front of the temple, immediately after the Feast of Tabernacles. Both the setting and the timing of the festival are very significant for us to understand what's happening. The Feast of the Tabernacles was a celebration that was to remind the people that God had chosen to dwell with his people. He did so with the tabernacle in the wilderness, but the ultimate fulfillment is found in John 1:14, where it says the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled amongst us. God chose to dwell with his people because that's his heart. And in the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles, there are two symbols that are very significant. The first one is that of living water. It was a reminder of how God gave water out of a rock in the wilderness um, to be able to provide for the thirst of the people. And that was a symbol of what Jesus is and what he offers to you and I in providing us living water. We've already seen that that symbol represented with the woman at the well in John chapter 4 about how God offers to refresh the deepest thirst of who you are. Well, the second symbol that's connected with the Feast of Tabernacles was a giant menorah, a giant lampstand that was set up in the courtyard of the temple that represented God being the light of the world. The setting there at the Feast of Tabernacles was very, very important. In fact, let's back up before we actually look at the passage. Let's see the context. I want to show you John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. Here's what it says. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Here in this passage, Jesus offers a beautiful invitation, an invitation to each and every one of us, just as he was offering it to each person gathered there at the temple, that he wants to give you living water, life within, and that represents the Holy Spirit living within you, dwelling within you. What a picture of tabernacles, a picture of God dwelling with us. That's what he offers us. But that invitation can only be received by personally placing our faith in Jesus as Savior and following him as Lord. Well, in our story, in the context, Jesus' invitation is met by an attempt by the religious leaders to trap Jesus. They're using the setting at the temple to be able to try to find a way to trap Jesus in some way where they think they can expose him for being a fraud. But they don't realize who they're dealing with. 
They don't understand that God himself is in their midst. There's no way to trap him. Let's look now at this account in the scriptures in John chapter 8 and see how Jesus meets with the woman at the temple. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered round him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up. and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. I want you to think of the setting for just a moment. It takes place at the temple, the very place that was to represent the mercy of God, a place that was to be a house of prayer, a place of intercession, the very place where sin was made atonement for. The religious leaders of Jesus' day come dragging this woman who they say is caught in adultery and they bring her to Jesus right in front of the temple. I'm sitting here in Visharad, outside of the Basilica of Peter and Paul. It's a beautiful, beautiful symbol of God's grace, of God's work, because a church has been here for almost a thousand years. And what the church is designed to be is a reminder of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, that God has come to us. In a similar way, this, the temple was a symbol that God had come to them to provide a way so that they could be reconciled in their relationship with God. It was at that setting that the religious leaders seek to trap Jesus. And yet the very setting itself speaks about how they and we need a savior. 
The self-righteous attempted to get Jesus to condemn and stone a woman for a sin she was guilty of. But the encounter will eventually lead to an attempt to, to stone Jesus himself. Before we explore the, the passage, let's, let's look how the encounter ends. Jesus reveals that he is God come to earth. In John chapter 8, verse 58, it says this, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So the setting here is incredible. It begins with these religious leaders bringing a woman who clearly is guilty and asking if Jesus is willing to stone her right there and then. But the encounter ends with these same religious leaders, at least some of them, picking up stones, wanting to stone Jesus, the God of the universe. How incredible is that? It's incredible because Jesus took the stoning that we deserve. You see, the woman was guilty. She deserved the punishment that was prescribed in the law for what she had done. But just like Jesus does for you and I, Jesus stood in the gap. He stood in her place and made a way for her to receive forgiveness. Understand that more than anything, this passage is about how you and I will respond to Jesus. Will we receive his grace and be transformed like the woman? Or will we seek to justify ourselves, judge others, and rebel against God? The story begins and ends with stones of judgment. And that's where I want us to start. I want us to start with a rock. This rock represents what you and I deserve. The woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, that's a powerful statement. There doesn't appear to be any attempt to deny her guilt. Now, there are a lot of other questions that we should ask, like what happened to the man? And why is he not on trial as well? Because Last I checked, it takes at least two to commit adultery, and somehow he seems to have gotten away. Clearly, the intent of the religious leaders was to shame this woman and to trap Jesus. They didn't care about her at all, which again makes the setting so important because, you see, the temple was the place where God would provide provision, provide sacrifice, provide reconciliation. Furthermore, it appears from the text that the accusers were waiting to catch her. They wanted a reason to accuse Jesus and to trap him. He was the true target of their anger. And if you read further, you discover that they eventually, again, as I mentioned before, try to stone Jesus, but he slips away. Regardless of the motives of the accusers, the woman was guilty, and she represents each and every one of us. We are all guilty, not necessarily of adultery, but we have all broken the law. Please hear me clearly. Adultery is a terrible sin. It has been the source of incredible pain, and it has uh, wreaked havoc in the lives of millions and millions of people. But all sin is sin. Different sins have different effects, but they all have the same heart, the same root. They're all sin. But look at what Jesus said. Remember what he said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 25, verse 28? But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman 
with lustful intent in his heart, has already committed adultery with her. Wow, that changes things, doesn't it? See, God looks at our heart, and who of us wouldn't be guilty of committing sins in our heart, even if we haven't committed the act physically? We're guilty. And so this stone represents what you and I deserve, what I deserve. The great British um, Christian G.K. Chesterton demonstrated his awareness of sin's impact on his own life and the impact that it had on those around him when he responded to a London Times question asking what was wrong with the world. His answer was simply, Dear sirs, in response to your question, what is wrong with the world? I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. He had an understanding of what the scripture teaches about what sin does to us and what do, sin does through us in the lives of others. That's why the scriptures reveal in Romans 5:12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, through Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. That's also why we're told in Romans 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. According to the scripture, all sinners deserve the punishment the woman's accusers were demanding. We all deserve the rock. Stoning was, was a horrible form of punishment. What would happen in stoning and, and the reason why it was used in, in the scripture as the form of capital punishment was that the witnesses who brought an accusation against the accused were required to throw the first stones. They had to be so sure the, the testimony that they were giving was accurate that they would be willing to carry out the punishment themselves. But then a large group would continue to carry out the sentence until the body no longer stirred, until it died. This way, the community carried out the sentence and not just one person. The form of punishment was designed to be able to um, make it so that not just one person was responsible for the death of the other, but the community would carry out the judgment together. All of us deserve punishment. And the truth is, not only do we deserve punishment, but pretty much all of us also have a stone in our hands as well. We are both the accused and the accusers. Is there a rock in your hand? We deserve the rock. But so often, we are also the accusers, judging others, trying to take the place that God himself rightly deserves. You see, he alone is judge. So that's the rock. That's the first part that we see here in this passage, is that the woman is guilty and she represents all of us. But we also find our reflection there in the crowd. Secondly, there's the rescue, the forgiveness that Jesus offers. The men were seeking a way to trap Jesus. He'd been preaching grace, repentance, and forgiveness. He'd be, been preaching about how you could have life in him, be filled with the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, living water. And yet that message threatened the authority of those religious leaders. In fact, Jesus went so far to tell the paralyzed man when he healed him, your sins are forgiven. Here they thought they had Jesus in a corner. How can he say he is from God and not carry out the sentence that the law required? 
Well, Jesus shows God's heart in a beautiful way because God is both holy and just, but he is also loving and merciful. Jesus could have easily avoided the conflict. This was taking place at the temple courtyard right next to the council room at the Sanhedrin where the high court of Israel would meet. All Jesus had to do was to push the question to the supreme court which was right next door. But Jesus came for this very reason. He came to stand in the gap. That's why Jesus said about himself in Luke 19 verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You see, the rescue that Jesus provided is that he placed himself between the guilty and the accusers. Let's look at it again. Let's see what it says in John chapter 8. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus' forgiveness is not based on our innocence. We're guilty. His forgiveness is based on God's grace. Do you see how important that is? That Jesus stood and he rescued the woman who was clearly guilty. That's a picture of you and I. We're not innocent. In fact, to claim that we are innocent proves just how guilty we are. The Psalms puts it this way. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. All of us are guilty. But Jesus' forgiveness was based on grace. Secondly, Jesus' forgiveness is not based on the severity of our sin. She was guilty, but so were those who were accusing her. No sin is too great to be forgiven, but also no sin is too small that it does not need forgiveness. Jesus' forgiveness does not give us permission to continue in sin. When Jesus addressed the woman, he says, I do not condemn you, but go and from now on sin no more. You see, Jesus rescues us from sin to change us, to give us his life, his forgiveness, and his Holy Spirit to live within us to change us. We can't change ourselves and clean up our life on our own, but when we invite Christ into our life, he brings transformation into us that changes the direction of our life from that very moment on. We'll still struggle, we'll still wrestle with sin and with difficulties, with failures, with temptation, but his Holy Spirit is working within us to change us and make us more and more like him. So we've seen the rock that we're all guilty. We've seen the rescue, how Jesus stands between us and our accuser. He stands between us and our sin. But to truly understand this, we need to understand the root. What is it that needs to be destroyed? What is it that needs to be recognized in our life and in the lives of everyone that was gathered there at this encounter? What is the root of sin? Why were these men so intent on trapping Jesus and stoning the woman? Jesus' authenticity 
challenge their authority. They were the ones that everyone had to obey. They were the ones who set the example, the standards. They were the ones who were in charge. And these religious leaders had control over the lives of people, but they were leading the people farther and farther away from a true understanding of who God is as He revealed Himself in His Word and as He showed us in His Son, Jesus. They were motivated not by love as Jesus is, but by pride. To them, life was all about them. What a difference and contrast to Jesus. Jesus willingly humbled Himself and stood in our place. In fact, He humbled Himself so much so that He was willing to go to the cross for you and I, to ultimately stand in our place between us and the penalty we deserved. You see, that's the kind of God we have. That's the kind of love He has for you and for me. Well, Jesus meets this encounter and the accusers in an incredible way. The scripture tells us that he bent down and began to write in the earth, in the dirt. Now, there's a lot of speculation about what Jesus wrote. And some believe he wrote the Ten Commandments. Others believe that perhaps he began writing down their names. And I think that might, might be a pretty good guess, but we don't really know. I can't tell you what Jesus wrote, but I can show you why he wrote there in the earth. The scripture reveals to us in the book of Jeremiah exactly why Jesus wrote in the dirt and what he was trying to accomplish and reveal to those gathered there so that they would put down their stones and hopefully many of them turn to faith in Jesus Christ. Let's look at it in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 17 verse 12. A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. So you see, the setting of this description that we see in Jeremiah 17 is the throne of God. It is the dwelling place. In fact, it takes place at the temple, just like our account with the woman at the temple and her accusers. Verse 13, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. So the scriptures reveal that Jesus kneeled down into the dirt and began to write in the earth. Perhaps he was even writing this passage. We really don't know what he was writing. But this passage, because it deals with living water, was likely one that would have been read during the Feast of Tabernacles. So the religious leaders that were gathered there would have been familiar with the words of Jeremiah. They would have been familiar with the setting of how it takes place at the sanctuary, at the temple, at the gathering place between God and humanity, at the place of mercy. They would have been familiar with the theme of the living water that was revealed there in Jeremiah because it's a theme that appears all through the book of Jeremiah about how God's people had rejected him and they had hewn for themselves their own cisterns, their own water containers that were broken, trying to bring refreshment rather than coming to him, the fountain of living water. Well, the passage in Jeremiah goes on. It doesn't just give the condemnation. Listen to what it says in verse 14. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, 
and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. This is exactly what Jesus has done for us. Even though we're guilty, even though our names are written out, guilty of sin, written in the earth, we can call upon Jesus Christ, ask Him to save us and to heal us, and He will save us, and He becomes the object of our praise. Jesus writes in the ground because those who reject God's gift of salvation are written in the earth. Those who forsake Christ, who left His throne on high, are destined to judgment. Your name will either be written in the book of life or it will be written in the earth. I believe Jesus, who knows the heart of all people, wrote down in the earth something that helped them see their own guilt. And that's why the scripture goes on and says, one by one, their stones began to fall. Beginning with the oldest to the youngest, they dropped their stones. With that context, let's see what happens next. Let's look at John 8, verse 15. He says, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. He said to them, you are from below the earth. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus is reaching out to the accusers. He's offering grace to them. He's offering grace to us. We must decide what we're going to do with Jesus. Because there's only two choices. We will either humble ourselves and receive His forgiveness, His sacrifice for us, and trust in Him, or we'll be like those that are listed in Jeremiah who turn away from the Lord, whose names are written in the earth because they've forsaken the Lord, the fountain of of living water. Which one are you? Even I'm asking myself, who am I? Well, the root of sin is pride. It's one that we're all guilty of. And we all have to either humble ourselves before the Lord or we will turn away and rebel like many of the accusers did. Well, the last point I want to make is the remedy. What's the cure for all who are guilty? Whether we're caught in a sin or we're the ones who are holding the rock accusing, we're all guilty of sin. Well, the answer is to receive Jesus' forgiveness and to go and sin no more. Exactly what he told the woman. He says, no longer do I condemn you. I won't condemn you, but I want to see a change of direction in your life from this point forward. I've given you forgiveness. I've stood in your place. That's what he did for the woman. That's what he's done for us. What have you done with Jesus? Have you trusted in Him? That's the first step. That's the first part of the remedy. But there's a second step as well. You see, we also need to be willing to drop our stones. We need to recognize that it's sinful for us to judge others. Only God has the right to judge. What we need to do is to take those stones that we so often hold of judgment towards others 
and place the stones in the hands of Jesus and say, I am not worthy to judge. Only you are. So Lord, instead, give me your heart for others. Let me become an instrument of grace. Let me become an example that shows people what Jesus is like. As the church, we need to be ones who show the hope that we have in Christ. A church, much like the temple, should be a place of mercy, of forgiveness, of reconciliation. Unfortunately, too often, what comes to people's minds when they think about church is judgment, and judgment belongs to the Lord. So let's make a commitment to put down our stones and to be more and more like Jesus. Because you see, the thing that causes us to pick up the stone in the first place is pride. We throw stones because we harbor hatred within. We throw stones because we hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness. We throw stones because we are entangled in anger. We feel like our rights have been infringed. We throw stones because we want to have revenge or because we want to lift ourselves up above others. Yet Jesus' words are very penetrating. If any of you is without sin, let him throw the first stone. All of us make mistakes. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all of us have the exact same spiritual need for Jesus. Therefore, we need to put down those stones and ask the Lord to make us His instruments of reconciliation in the lives of others. See, ultimately, that's the message that Jesus is presenting here. That He is the one who stood in our place because we are all guilty. But also, He is asking us, inviting us, to be instruments of reconciliation. The New Testament goes on and describes believers as having a ministry of reconciliation. It is our job to paint an accurate picture of Jesus in the way that we live, in the way that we love, in the way that we serve, so that others can come to Him and have life. Would you make that your prayer today? As I make it my prayer. This Sunday is Pentecost Sunday. It's a Sunday that we celebrate the giving of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit came and filled the disciples on that first Pentecost, overflowing their lives with His presence, with His power, in order to draw those who were lost to faith in Jesus Christ. Would you make it your prayer this Pentecost Sunday that the Lord would fill you with the living water of the Holy Spirit, that He would fill His church with the living presence of His Holy Spirit within us in such a way that others begin to see an accurate picture of Jesus and they find life in Him. Would you join with me in prayer right now? To Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for showing us Your heart through Your Son, Jesus. And Lord Jesus, thank You for standing in my place because I'm guilty and I need a Savior. Lord, your mercy is indescribable. Your loving kindness is everlasting. Lord, would you fill us with the living water of the Holy Spirit. Fill your church. And Lord, help us to rightly show who you are to the lives of others so that those who are broken, who are lost, those who are prideful, 
those who need you may find hope and life in you. Lord, change us. Use this season that we've gone through to refine your church, to put us back on track with the mission to which you've called us in showing your truth, your love, and your grace to the world around us. Oh Lord, fill us with your presence, we pray, because we want to see many find life in you. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. Lord, I thank you for each and every person that's, that's watching today. Would you speak to them right where they are, Lord, what they need to hear, speak to their heart, and give them the courage to call in the name of Jesus, I pray. In his great name and for his honor, we pray. Amen.